Today, I will be reading from Luke 1, 5-7, and 11-18. You can follow along in your Bible or on screen as I read the passage aloud for us. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. This is God's word. Good morning, everyone. All right, let's try that one more time. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is great to be with you and to worship with you and to worship with the children of reality as well. That was amazing. Uh, If we haven't met, again, my name is Eugene, and uh, one of the reasons why I uh, find it a tremendous privilege to be at reality or any time in San Francisco is because this is my home city. I immigrated to the San Francisco in 1977 when I was six years old. I was born in Seoul, South Korea, came here when I was six, went to Sherman Elementary, Aptus Middle School, went to Lowell High School, went to college in this area as well. And so uh, for some years, I had always been praying. I came to be a believer at the age of 18 and had prayed for God to build up churches that were gospel-centered, that loved God, loved neighbors, that really believed in the power of the whole gospel. And so every time I get to be here at Reality, it feels like an answer to prayer. Uh, And this time, I'm joined by my wife, who's able to join me from Seattle. I think she's in this area. Minhee, can you stand really quickly? There she is. That's my wife right there. So welcome. And uh, uh, just to give you proof, I I brought some photos. We actually got engaged here. Uh, We got engaged here in San Francisco as well. Uh, You can see the Golden Gate Bridge right in the back. Uh, My mother uh, uh, said that she would take care of the photographer. And um, this is the photographer that she picked. Uh, Rumor has it that he's still available in case some of you guys are interested. Uh, But we laugh, but back then this was cutting edge technology. All right, so we have been now married for about 27 uh, plus years. Uh, Praise God for Asian genes, uh, Asians, Asians. Um, So, all right. Well, let's, um, uh, I'm going to just spend one more moment maybe just giving you the opportunity to learn a little bit about bread for the world. 
Uh, Bread for the World, uh, as Tariq mentioned, is a, an, a nonpartisan Christian advocacy organization. Um, so my staff and I, both in the D.C. area and around the country, we spend the bulk of our time engaging the United States government, uh, the administration in the White House, the U.S. Congress, and intergovernmental agencies. And we believe that churches have a role, individuals have a role, that private enterprise has a role. We also believe that the federal budget is a moral document as well. And so we are urging our government to do its part to help end hunger around the world and in the United States. You might not know this, but 13 million of children, some that you may have seen up on stage, children like the children you saw, 13 million children here in the United States experienced a level of food insecurity here in the wealthiest nation in the world. Uh, that is stunning. Globally, 45 million children experience what we call wasting, where their bodies are withering. And right now, before our eyes, we are seeing uh, one of the worst global hunger crises in modern history, which is the reason why uh, all of us have to do our part. And so if you, by any chance, are interested in joining Bread by raising your voice, uh, by contacting your members of Congress, uh, urging others during a political gridlock in our nation to do what's merciful and compassionate and just, I want to encourage you to check out bread.org to learn more about the work that we're doing. Well, if you wouldn't mind just joining me once more in a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into God's word. Father, thank you again so much for the joy, the privilege that it is to study your word. God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, and all God's people said, amen, amen. The title of this series, as you know, is Christ in Strange Places. If I were to zoom out a little bit, I would contend with you that the entire story of Christmas, the entire story of Emmanuel, the entire story of the incarnation is strange. It's bizarre. It's profound. It's scandalous. And you're welcome into this story. It's not that it's untrue, but it is incredulous that the God of the universe would choose to take on flesh and bone and enter into human history to become one of us. And to ultimately go to the cross so that you and I would not live in eternal separation from God but be able to experience reunion with God. And in this story, what is so profound is that this story is for everyone. It's not just for the mighty, not just for the wealthy, not just for the who's in, but that this story, this good news is available to anyone and everyone. 
Now, I know that for you and I, we believe that to be true, but I also want you to realize that what I just said is countercultural. Let me give you an example of how things work in this world, and not that in itself is bad, but remember when you were a a younger person, I'm uh, 53, I love basketball, I love sports, and so in our family, our mottos are Jesus is Lord and ball is life, are the two mottos of our family. My daughter played point guard for her high school and I played basketball growing up. But remember in the playgrounds, how or in any sporting event, what would happen is you would identify two captains and then they would Rochambeau and then they would take turns selecting who they wanted on the team. Now, for myself, growing up in San Francisco, playing some ball in the city as well as in Oakland, as crazy as it sounds, I remember playing in playgrounds with people that would eventually become basketball legends. So I remember uh, someone named Gary Payton, Brian Shaw, an amazing player by the name of Hook Mitchell. He was a legend. And every now and then, I would get a chance to play, and two captains were identified. They would take turns, and yes, you don't have to speculate. I was always the last person selected. (laughs) Always. Hey, I was just happy to be in the game, but I was always the last person selected. Now, it's kind of a comical illustration But in some ways, you could argue that our world is structured in a system of the who's who and the who's not. The who's have and the who doesn't. Whether we articulate it or not, there are systems and structures. And I want you to know that when Jesus comes, as the Apostle Paul articulates in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, but we are one in Christ Jesus. Now, I just want you to know what I just recited from Scripture is absolutely ridiculous. And this is the kingdom of God. And so when we're speaking about this Advent story, the the arrival, the birth of Jesus, yes, God loves everyone, but I also want you to know that God regularly, intentionally, giving us a glimpse of his kingdom, chooses folks that would normally be selected last. In the entire birth of Christ, for example, Mary and Joseph, to think that God and God's sovereignty would choose them, the angels, the shepherds, the innkeeper. So even as we're contemplating this story, I want to introduce you to two characters named Elizabeth and Zachariah, as we just read. I suspect that if you're like me, if I were to ask you, who are some of the characters that you know in the Christmas narrative? Of course, we're going to say baby Jesus. That doesn't count. Mary and Joseph. 
We'll talk about the angels. We'll talk about the shepherds. We'll talk about the innkeeper. We'll talk about Herod. But you'd be surprised in an informal survey conducted by an author uh, basically asking about people's familiarity. It was Zachariah and Elizabeth that garnered the fewest votes. In some ways, you could say that they're tertiary characters to this entire story. And I just want you to know that in God's economy, there is no tertiary. God chooses and calls all of us to be a part of his story. So in case you're not familiar with them, let me just give you a glimpse of who they are and the context in which they sought to be faithful to God. If you know much about them or anything about them, I would suspect that what you would say is their parents to John the baptizer. That's what they were known for. Zechariah came from a priestly tradition that was his calling, his service. They were married. Both of them came from the lineage of Aaron. But the other common thing that most folks know about them is that they were, quote unquote, old. And I say that acknowledging that during the time that the scripture is read, and you could even contend in today's world, people that were old were considered no longer useful to society. I love how Zachariah describes himself. He says, I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. You could tell he's also wise. <laughs> There's no specific numbering, just well along in years. In fact, if you were to speculate how old they were, scholars have some disagreement. Some would say between 60 to 70 years old. Some actually believe that Elizabeth may have been in her late 70s. I want you to know this is a crazy story. Even their names speak about God's centrality in their lives. Elizabeth, coming from the word Elisheba, which means the oath of God. God satisfies God's promises. The last time I counted, there are 28 references or different Zacharias in the scripture. And that word Zechariah means remembered of Yahweh or God has remembered. Both of their names point to the faithfulness of God. Now, we could stop right here, call it an early Sunday, but I wouldn't be doing service to them or to you without giving some sort of context about what chaos and pain looks like. So let me spend some time speaking about the cultural chaos and personal pain. During this time that Jesus is born, I want you to realize these were trying times. And I suspect that if you're like me, 
There are times today you might be watching the news, reading the newspaper, trying to get a sense of all that's happening in our cities, in our nation, and around the world, and we go, feels chaotic, challenging, confusing, painful. But it's not the first time. During the time of the birth of Jesus, there was tremendous abuse happening in the world. There was injustice and division. Children and women were not well treated. The separation between slaves and those that were free. The tension and division between Gentiles and Samaritans. The level of religious corruption, political upheaval and oppression. Friends, it was challenging. Let me give you a glimpse, more specific details. We know something, for example, of Herod the Great from the book of Matthew. Just a glimpse of his abuse of power, he orders the murder of all male children two years old and under in the vicinity of Bethlehem. Can you imagine if a ruler says, here in the city of San Francisco, all boys two years and under will have to be discarded. This man was so paranoid that he has actually three of his own sons murdered, one of his 10 wives murdered, numerous others. In a larger political landscape, Caesar Augustus issues a degree for a census and one would want to assume that it would be in order to provide better representation, but it was actually to be able to tax people with greater accuracy. Why? Because of something called Pax Romana, military building expansion, overall imperial control, make Romana great again. The Jewish people, they had experienced generations and generations of rule and oppression. For some of you who are into history, you'll know that if you go back centuries upon centuries, they experienced the oppression of the Egyptians and the Syrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. And if you were to zoom out from there to what's happened in our world in the last three or four years, I mean, just a glimpse of what all of us may have experienced. Not that long ago, I remember being here with masks, all of us. This pandemic, unprecedented illnesses and deaths, economic impact and joblessness, businesses lost, the debate about masks and vaccines and boosters, the most contentious election in modern American history, the January 6th insurrection, social unrest and protests, pain, trauma for our black and brown sisters and brothers, names like George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, the vilification of all law enforcement, the rise of anti-Asian hate, strained relationships with families and churches and war and conflict all around the world, Afghanistan, the war in Ukraine, Tigray, Ethiopia, Yemen, in South Sudan, Myanmar, shootings in this country, in Buffalo, Uvalde, Israel, Gaza, and the West Bank. Hey, thanks for coming to church. We'll see you next Sunday. 
I don't know about you, but just reading that list feels overwhelming. So the social unrest, the, the, the sort of cultural chaos that we experience today existed during the time of Jesus, perhaps even amplified so much more. And on top of that, Zechariah and Elizabeth surely must have had some questions, like all of us do. During that time, we can only speculate this era between the Old Testament and the New Testament, where for 400 years there was apparent silence. There had been no prophets raised up by God during that time to our knowledge. There were no brave women or men empowered by the Holy Spirit to call the people to repent and turn back to God. No amazing miracles, signs, or wonders to our knowledge because it's not recorded, just apparent silence. And let's just be honest. Surely, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and maybe some of us, may have asked the question, has God forgotten his people? I mean, surely, if we're honest with ourselves, there may have been moments in your lives as you speculate, not just what's going on around the world, but even in our own lives, God, have you forgotten us? And I want you to know that it's in that specific context that in God's majestic sovereignty, Jesus came during the darkest hour, bringing hope and light, even in times of apparent silence, God is not absent. God is at work, and God is not yet done. The question that I often receive amid all of the chaos of our world is, where is hope? Our hope is not in politicians. Our hope is not in parties. Our hope is not in systems. Ultimately, our hope resides and rests and rejoices in the promises of God through his son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Remember. But friends, it wasn't just even cultural chaos. It was also personal pain. I don't want to stand here and just point you to the challenges of the world when in fact I suspect that if you're human just like me, there's pain and disappointment in your own life. I can't speak to the specifics of all that you're going through, but I can just share with you with a level of vulnerability that last year, for my wife and I, our family and our loved ones was the most challenging year of our lives. The most challenging year of our lives. And I'm trying to imagine what Zachariah and Elizabeth must have also experienced because what we know with the limited information that we have of them, is that Zachariah and Elizabeth were not able to have children. 
And friends, that must have been a source of so much, not just disappointment, but pain. You see, especially back then, if a woman was not able to give birth to a child, it wasn't just that disappointment in itself, but it was the optics, the perception that others viewed you as one curse by God. One accused by God, or it was a result of some sort of sin. So can you imagine walking around town knowing that as people are looking at you, for those who would maybe gossip behind your back, that when they see you, the main narrative of how they perceive you is, there's Elizabeth, cursed by God. That when they would see Zachariah, oh man, this fake priest wannabe, cursed by God. And yet, what we know, friends, is that Jesus came during the darkest hour bringing hope and light. That even in times of apparent silence, God is not absent, God is at work, God is not yet done, not just for the larger world and cosmos, but also in your life. And not just in your life, but in the lives of your neighbors, in our city, in our nation, and around the world, both are true. So even as we worship and gather today is to know that God is not yet done. And that part of this Advent season is we look back celebrating in the birth of Jesus, but we're also in a season of waiting as we wait for the return of Jesus to come and to restore all things. But let's dig in a little bit more. Here's the question that I want you to ponder. How was it that Zachariah and Elizabeth were able to experience peace? It's a rhetorical question. You don't have to raise hands, but have there been times in the past few years where you just say, God, I just want to experience your peace? Because it feels like all around me in my life, in our family, in our city, in our nation, around the world, feels like Things are shifting, crumbling, breaking, hurting. Well, for the sake of our sermon, there's a few things that I'd love to share, but I want to just focus on three things. Just three things that might not necessarily be easy answers, but three things that we can learn from Scripture. The first one, friends, is that they remained righteous in the sight of God. Not perfect. They remained righteous. Verse 6 from our reading, both of them, both of them, Elizabeth and Zechariah, were righteous in the sight of God, which simply means they observed, they were obedient, they were faithful to the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. I know it feels obtuse that in the year 2023, there might be things in Scripture that we feel like are so... Um, uh, archaic, outdated, not necessarily uh, in vogue with our larger culture. 
And I'm not suggesting that we should be in an adversarial spirit or relationship with society. I just want you to know that our ultimate allegiance is to our Lord Jesus Christ. So they remained righteous in the sight of God. That's the first thing. They studied God's word. They knew God's word. They digested God's word. They loved God. And even if there were questions galore, clearly in their mind and heart, they had to have questions. They may have ultimately had just existential questions like, where are you, God? But they remained righteous in the sight of God. And friends, I want to encourage you. Rejoice in God's word, be obedient to God, be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, be faithful to Jesus. Here's the second thing that they did is that they were faithful. And more specifically, they kept doing what they were called to do. And part of the joys and challenges of our world today, in my opinion, is that there are so many choices every single day. And I find it really interesting that for some of us as Christians, whenever we enter into a new opportunity, a new season, or a new chapter, it's very tempting to say, I feel that God has called me into this. And that when we exit, we exit without any reference of Jesus. Now, that's been my anecdotal experience as a pastor in, in the city of Seattle. We love using Jesus to say, I believe God has called me into this. And when we exit, we exit because I've made that determination. And I'm not suggesting that we can't enter and exit transitions and chapters of our lives. But I want you to know that if you believe God has called you to something even if it takes different shapes and forms, keep doing what God has called you to do. Persevere, be faithful, be steadfast. Even if it's not necessarily fancy. One of the biggest dangers, in my opinion, humbly speaking, is the lure or the allure of something called spectacular Christianity. There's a temptation of the Instagram Christianity. I'll tell you right now, like in all of my IG photos, I look tall. <laughs> I, I, I have a, I've mastered the technique of certain angles where I look like I'm six foot four. <laughs> Clearly, you know that I'm not. There's an allure of spectacular Christianity, and I'm not trying to dismiss that I agree that God may have amazing things for you, spectacular things for you, but let me also ask you, in addition to that, what if God has called you to simple and mundane things in life? Will you be faithful? When you're not on stage, when you're off stage, when you're beside the stage, will you still be faithful? See, Zachariah and Elizabeth could be seen as 
tertiary characters. They're just parents to John the baptizer. They're not that important. And yet they were faithful. They were righteous in the sight of God. And they continued to do what they believe God called them to do. And God honors them. Gosh, living here in the Bay Area in the startup culture, the entrepreneurial culture, the movers and the shakers. And again, I celebrate all of those things. I also want you to know some of the most important things that you will be doing in your life is when no one is watching you. Some, uh, a couple years ago, I was visiting my parents who live about three miles away. And, uh, you know, the relationship is such that we just visit each other's homes unannounced. And I go visit them and I open the door and I say in Korean, 어머니 아버지, 막내 왔습니다. Your youngest son is here. <laughs> say, 어머니 아버지, 제일 사랑하는 아들이 왔습니다. Your most beloved favorite son is here. <laughs> now, the thing is, no response, but I hear noise. <laughs> what happened? Uh, and so I hear noise upstairs, but no response. And so eventually I deduce that my father's not there. It's all I hear is my mother's voice. I walk up the stairs, and I'm going to show you a photo soon. I walk up the stairs, and I'm just taken back by the image of my mother just praying. And I'm not sure if this is detailed enough, but her head is literally buried in the Bible. Now, I don't say this to be insulting of my mother. She hasn't started a business. She doesn't have a blog. She's not an influencer. She ran a grocery store on Pine Street here for many, many years. But every day, she gets on her knees to pray for her children for her grandchildren, for this nation, for this world. Zachariah and Elizabeth were faithful. They kept doing what they were called to do. And here's the last thing, is that they waited upon the Lord. That's the third thing that we can learn. They waited upon the Lord. And friends, what do I mean by they waited upon the Lord? Well, simply to name and acknowledge all of us, I don't care what your background is, we hate waiting. I've never heard someone say, you know, my spiritual gift is patience. It's really rare, really, really rare. I mean, I hate to wait. It's embarrassing for me to confess this, but patience is not my biggest virtue. My wife and I will go to Costco and she hates this. But whenever we go to Costco, I insist to my wife, Minhee, it's Minhee, you go to line four, I'm gonna go to line seven. <laughs> Text, 
whoever gets there first will take our cart. <laughs> All to save what? One minute, two minutes? I'm like giving her hand signals and... I'm the person that presses 60 seconds, one minute on the microwave, anyone else? And before it hits zero, I just open the door. <laughs> but when you read the scriptures, I have some bad news and good news. Here's the bad news. Women and men who sought to pursue after God waited. Joseph waited 13 years. Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years. Moses waited 40 years. Rahab waited 40 years. Some speculate that Jonah waited more than 100 years to complete the building of the ark. Joseph waited in prison. Job waited in mourning. Paul waited and waited for an answer to his prayer that God would remove his thorn in the flesh and to our knowledge we're not sure if that ever came to pass. Even Jesus waited 30 years to begin his ministry, and then he waited another 40 days in the desert. I love and I'm challenged by these words from Henry Nouwen, this Jesuit priest and theologian who writes in one of his books, waiting time is not wasting time. Waiting patiently in expectation is the foundation of a spiritual life. Please don't misconstrue what I'm saying here. I'm not suggesting that waiting time is lackadaisical time, lazy time, apathetic time, but believing that God is at work, God is still in control. And therefore, during the season of Advent, as we're awaiting for the return of Jesus, I wait not without apathy or aimlessness, but I wait in expectancy and in faithfulness for what Jesus is going to do. That's Zachariah and Elizabeth. Steadfast, persevered, pursuing after God. One of my favorite verses in scripture actually comes from a translation called the message. And in John chapter one, verse 14, it simply reads, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. So as to say that the God of the universe is telling Zachariah and Elizabeth, not just the words, I love you, but to demonstrate in absolute solidarity, God entering into our human condition. So friends, the good news, yes, is salvation. When we place our trust in Jesus, that's good news. But the good news is not absolute clarity and absolute answer to all the prayers that you have in your life. It's not perfection and bliss. The good news is that you're not alone, that God is with you, that God enters into our story and the human condition. That is about Christ in strange places. And if the God of the universe, 
was born in a dirty, messy manger. There is no mess or brokenness in our lives that God is not willing to step into. So whatever you're going through this morning, do not forget that God cares for you. That Jesus is Emmanuel and God with us. I I gotta land the plane soon. Here's my concern. My concern is that for some of you, I don't know your story, but for some of you, this might not be your first Christmas experience inside a church. This is not the first time you've seen the lighting of candles. This is not the first time you've seen incredibly cute children come up and parents are elbowing each other for the best angle of photos. This is probably not the first time. And when you hear the Christmas story enough times, or in my case, when you preach it several times, there's a possibility that its scandalous nature gets somewhat lost. It becomes cute. And I want you to know This is not a cute story. It is nonsensical, true, but incredulous in many ways. Uh, Let me give an example and we'll land. I I brought a photo of some fish. And I want you to just focus here on this fish here. And as you focus on this fish, I want to point you or direct you to an author by the name of Philip Yancey who gives an illustration of how crazy the story of Christmas, of the incarnation is. For any of you who's ever owned a fish pet, you know that there's actually some work required. And it's not just about the fish, but about the maintenance of the environment for the fish. This is what Philip Yancey says. He says, quote, I had to run a portable chemical laboratory to monitor the nitrate levels and the ammonia content. I pumped in vitamins and antibiotics and sulfur drugs and enough enzymes to make a rock grow. I filtered the water through glass fibers and charcoal and exposed it to ultraviolet light. You would think in view of all the energy expanded on their behalf that my fish would at least be grateful. (laughs) Not so. Every time my shadow loomed over the tank, they dove for cover into the nearest shell. They showed me one emotion only, fear. Although I opened the lid and dropped in food on a regular schedule three times a day, they responded to each visit as a sure sign of my designs to torture them. To my fish, he writes, I was deity. I was too large for them. My actions too incomprehensible. My acts of mercy they saw as cruelty. My attempts at healing they viewed as destruction To change their perceptions, I began to see to change their perception. The only way he concluded he could convince the fish of his intentions to care, nurture, and love them 
was that he would have to become fish. And enter into that story. Don't let this Advent Christmas season pass without knowing this, the birth of Jesus is profoundly, profoundly a story of God's amazing love for you. The one true God, the triune God, sent his son Jesus Christ to walk among us. That this love became flesh. Love showed us the way. Love was betrayed. Love was killed. Love was resurrected. Love endures. Love wins because Jesus is Lord. And he is worthy to be worshipped.